Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Welcome to part two of the uh, program on John Howard Yoder. And I'm using Yoder to work out a particular psycho-theological understanding, that is to apply a new approach to theology in which we can understand the character both of the theologian and the theology through the utilization of psychological or psychoanalytic terminology. And so I'm looking at the life of John Howard Yoder and in particular his long period of sexual perversion and experiment in what he called genital or non-genital touching. The point being that, uh, in fact, he did not uh, stick to his non-genital aspect of it. Yoder's sexual perversion evolves from the mid-1970s to the early 1990s with a theological perspective evolving with it that came to focus exclusively on ethics and politics. The exclusion of the uniqueness of Christ is connected then to the theological development. In Paul Martin's description, Yoder's theology subtly shifts towards equating Christianity and Judaism. That is that I think as we begin to examine the life of Yoder and the development of his theology, there is a trend. Martin describes it, he says, it is beginning to appear that Yoder understood a certain expression of Christianity to be very similar to a certain expression of Judaism, pushing his ecumenical and sociological concerns against the absolute uniqueness of Christianity, end quote. And as a result, quote, secular thinkers have begun to approach, appropriate aspects of the politics of Yoder without particular interest in the theological importance of either Jesus or Christianity. Martins, who is intimately familiar with Yoder, he's compiled several of his uh, essays, but he maintains that Yoder comes to equate kingdom building with morality and the kingdom itself with politics and social practices. And he says the church in Israel, in Yoder's thought, differ only in that the church includes Gentiles, and the church is inaugurating rule under the Lamb. But Yoder equates this with, quote, humbly building a grassroots culture, as with Jeremiah's defying the pagan king, or as with Daniel and his friends. He equates it with the call of Abraham and a social revolution constituted as, quote, the creation of a distinct community with its own deviant set of values. Though Martins does not make the connection, Yoder's sexual experimentation and his theological reduction of the kingdom devolved to immediate experience of a deviant socio-political situation with its own deviant sexuality. That is, Yoder is he's not doing this experiment in touching without articulating it, 
But he's suggesting that the ethic that is evolving will itself be unique, and this is what he's trying to work out in his experiment. And so Yoder's turn from the metaphysical and ontological abstractions often found in theology, uh, the very thing which in many ways uh, are attractive in his theology, was, I think, in his early theology offset by his Christocentrism. However, as Martins describes it, his early theological emphasis is undermined, I think, by his later emphasis that he begins then to de-emphasize the role of Christ or Christocentrism. This is from Martins. The late Yoder has ecumenically attempted to bring Judaism and Christianity together in both the sociological expression of not being in charge and in their theological reasons for doing so. But in the process, he has reduced many of his earliest claims to secondary afterthoughts, if not untruths. I'm just quoting Martins here. Claims that the life of Jesus, as an example, is uniquely definitional, for example, is dropped. Claims that peace is a goal and hope but not observable results of behavior. Claims that Jeremiah proclaimed peace when there was no peace are all reframed and subordinated to the ongoing privileged position of, quote, not being in charge. So as a, as a result, his theology comes to embrace secular-like notions of the idea of progress, which in some way, Martin says, can be verified by serious social science. So we can sum this up. It goes from Christ as culture, with the emphasis on Christ, to culture as Christ, with the emphasis on culture, that is, giving priority to culture. So with the shift away from, or the subordination of the unique role of Christ, what is left is social harmony constituted from the elements already present in any particular culture. That is, the culture is being reified. Peace becomes synonymous with the salvation of the culture in social and political terms. And this reduces to secular well-being, and this is Yoder's own phrase. Martin's claims that in late, the late Yoder there is no need for the particularities of Jesus once the function of his paradigmatic politics is understood. Let me state that again. There is no need for the particularities of Jesus once the function of his paradigmatic politics is understood. So for Yoder, politics becomes the universal element of Christianity, requiring no translation. That is, the wider world need not learn the foreign language of Christian theology or Christian narrative. There is no need to translate the secular idiom into the Christian idiom, or vice versa. There's already a, a mutual understanding, and this serves as the unifying element in ecumenism as uh, the propositional can confessions of sectarianism are set aside for the prime reality of politics. So, quote, the wrapping paper of emotions, matters of the soul, spiritual development, divine mystery, 
propositional confessions of faith can be disposed of once the package itself is opened. Quoting Martins there. The politics of Jesus pose the alternative reality of the church to the false politics of the world. This constitutes the direct communication of Christian witness. So what Yoder seems to miss is that the law of sin and death in Paul is a universal law grounded in self-deception. And this comes into not only the political, but the psychoanalytic, and that's what I'm, my point here, that the subject grounded in a lie is dependent on a gap in communication, as this gap constitutes his subjectivity. That is, think of the agonistic struggle. In Romans 7, one way of understanding that is that the deception of sin that brings us about is a necessity. The law or the symbolic world of language manifests itself in what we might call an internal politics of the subject in which the I or ego in Paul's description would establish itself by integrating itself completely in the law. This is perversion. But this law is not ethical or moral Rather, it is immoral. It is sin itself that one is deceived in regard to the law. The desire for this law, or the desire, we might say even of this law, just covetousness, is built on deception. It is the deception. Maybe we could say the desire is, the desire itself is the substance of the lie. The eye passively relinquishes control so that it is no longer I that does it, Paul says, but the law of sin within me. The pervert imagines without question, this would be the opposite, of course, of what's happening in Romans 7, because there is a questioning, a kind of hysterical questioning. But the pervert imagines that to passively serve this law by many means, through a perverse sexuality or through suffering, that he is integrated into it. And so the very nature of the perverse subject is to relinquish his own subjectivity to the law so as to establish the law, and of course here the law is the law of sin and death, sinning so that grace may abound in Paul's explanation. So Yoder's sexual experiments, like his theology, in passing over Paul's picture of two alternative subjects, and two alternative laws, that is, the law of sin and death, or the law of life in the spirit, misses the moral and psychological elements inherent in the politics of Jesus. The gap between the politics of the world and the church is itself grounded in alternative forms of the subject. There are alternative people, alternative characters, because there's alternative laws, there's alternative ethics, and so by passing this over, by passing over the work of the law of sin and death, a kind of, that is a universal law, that this is a deception that posits the notion that there is life in the law, when in reality there's only death. So just as the pervert would equate the sign, the law, the symbolic order of language, the rules of society, we might say, that he would equate that with the signified the life being the essence behind things. 
And so Yoder comes to equate ethics and politics with salvation. And none of these is grounded in or entails an alternative ontology of the subject. Christian conversion, in some way, seems to no longer play a key role. And so in the process, the secondary order of human sexuality comes to dominate his pursuit of what he calls, this is his name, the deviant kingdom. So the theological perversion reflected in the the sexual perversion and vice versa is the reduction of a secondary form, the sign, sex, to a primary element, life and salvation. So the point is that the perversion is consistent in both his theology and in his erotic touching. In avoiding what Yoder calls the magical element of Catholic sacramentalism and the rational reduction of a Zwingli, it appears that Yoder comes to equate the sacraments to social processes. So baptism and the Lord's Supper, which traditionally mark metaphysical, ontological participation in Christ, when they're reduced to their imminent forms, well, that just becomes egalitarianism and socialism. Given the notion of participation in Christ, egalitarianism and socialism might be apt descriptions, but Yoder seems to refer to processes in which Christ is a paradigmatic or prototypical, but not the enabling ground. And so baptism is the reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, male and female, and so amounts to a trans-ethnic, a transgendered inclusivism, we might say. And Yoder maintains communion is the name, this is quotation, is the name for the group and not merely the sacrament. Eating the bread is an act of social sharing, a communion that is to be visible in every place in the reality of persons whose lives, I'm quoting, are wholly shared with one another. Again, the, the statement here may be read in an you know, orthodox fashion, but if we understand that the late Yoder is removing any notion of a transcendent or inter-Trinitarian participation, then sharing bread is simply one of many, many empirical and sociological practices which together might constitute a community visibly distinct from the world. The point here, there's nothing ontologically significant or different in this shared bread, this shared communion than what is seen, the, the notion of a shared spirit or a shared body seems to, to not be taken account of. So to attain uninhibited communication and communion may require empirical and sociological practices that are otherwise considered deviant. This is Yoder's idea here. And so as Martins and friends conclude, in pursuing what he called non-genital affective relationships with women, Yoder may very well have seen himself incarnating the deviant set of values of this distinct community. Here would be an ethic put into practice, a deviant ethic, where participation in Christ is reduced not merely to the imminent, but with Yoder's displacement of the subjective to the exterior, 
new forms of touching may have been as close as he could come to intimacy. Friendship and fellowship drained of interiority leaves only the eroticism of bodies and a koinonia of the flesh. So this is not to in some way reify subjectivity, but it is at least to give a ground, there needs to be a ground for a new kind of human subjectivity in the body of Christ. And so Yoder's pure politics, his ethic that is purely a set of practices, seems to eliminate that element of a transformed subject. So this is my analysis of John Howard Yoder. It is in no way to eliminate the significance of his theology but simply to suggest that there is a trend, there is, that it, there is evolution in his theology, and someone deploying John Howard Yoder needs to be aware of the late Yoder and uh, the difference between later Yoder and early Yoder, and how perversion then, that is the idea of putting oneself in the place of the symbolic itself. You know, that's, that's what we're really dealing with here is there is only the world of symbols and there is no picture then of the body as a reality joined in some way and, and shaped by the symbol. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.